So today, today I want us to remember two words. These two words are going to help guide us through the day, through the sermon, help us remember the points. So I want us to remember these two very important words. These words are the words, but God. But God. So say it with me. I really want us to remember. What are the words? All right. Say it one more time. All right. Two words, six letters, but God. All right. Don't forget them. And if you do, just be open up your bulletin. It's a cheat sheet because it's the title of the sermon, right? So you will not forget the two words, but God. So anyone growing up in church, or if you know if you went to youth group growing up, or you go to these gatherings, or maybe college groups, or different things, almost all of them started with this, this things called icebreakers. So yeah, the icebreakers were these, these questions the leader would come up with, the, the youth pastor, whatever, he would come up with these questions, and they were used to warm up the conversation. The questions were always super, super easy. They're things like, what is your favorite ice cream flavor? Uh, would you rather vacation on a beach or on the mountains, right? Simple things. Questions without a right or wrong answer. Because the point of the question is not to gain some thought-provoking insight into a person. The point is simply to get everyone talking and to get comfortable, right? You're breaking the ice. Well, when I was in the youth, as a teenager, there was one Wednesday night in Sweet Home Baptist Church. We had our youth group. And our youth pastor, he just comes out with this icebreaker question. And again, they're supposed to be easy. So he, what does he ask? He asks, going around this room, there's about 20 of us. He goes, I want you to tell me, what is your favorite Bible verse? And who is your favorite person from the Bible? Now, I'll be honest with you, I immediately went blank. I couldn't think of a favorite verse. I couldn't think of a favorite person. Nothing. But blanking is not an option, right? Because you're going around in a circle. I see where I'm at. I see who's talking. I know it's coming my way. i got to figure out something. But to make matters worse, so Ariel and I had just been dating. So who's sitting across from me? There she is. Now, she knew that I grew up in church. She knew I was the pastor's kid. I'm supposed to know the Bible, right? I can't just say, "Mm, I don't know. So what did I do? I do what every boy does in that situation. I faked it, right? So my nerves are getting to me so badly that as they're going through, I'm trying to recite verses in my brain. What can I actually remember? Nothing, 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 nothing. Ah, John 3.16. I can recite John 3.16, right? That's the one thing I can write passage, which I found humorous because I don't know what this is from last week, but there's John 3.16 here as well, right? So I can quote John 3.16, and I just was going to pretend that this passage had this deep, deep meaning in my life. But then I had to come up with my favorite person. And I was sitting there thinking, and I'm thinking, I was like, well, I know there's this verse that says something about David, and I know he says something about how he loved God or something, right? I can't even think of the verse. So King David, he's my favorite person because I love God too, right? I'm going to take the easy way out. Because, again, you can't blink. I totally and completely faked it. 
But today we're actually going to look at one of my favorite characters in the Bible. The older I get, the more and more I, this person becomes my favorite character. He isn't my favorite because he's a titan in the faith like Abraham. He isn't my favorite because he performed some miracles like Elijah. He wasn't a missionary like Paul. He didn't preach to thousands and thousands come to Christ like Peter. He did none of these things. In fact, he's a nobody. The only thing that we know is his name. The character we're going to look at today is Habakkuk. So Habakkuk is becoming one of my favorite characters, mainly because I relate to him. And I think you can relate to him as well. So today we're going to walk through the entire book of Habakkuk. And we're going to see how Habakkuk, remember our two words? He's going to say, but God, twice. And then after that, we're going to look at three ways where we can say, but God. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just come before you now with a heart of thanksgiving, a heart of joy, grateful to be in your presence. We ask that you open our hearts and our minds to receive the word now. Speak to each of us. Let us know how to apply this to our lives so we leave this place a little closer to you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when it comes to the book of Habakkuk, you may not know a whole lot about it, but it's a, the, it's real, this construction is real easy. It's one of the few books, it's not written to a group of people. It's not written to, the, to these nations. It's not written to someone. It is just Habakkuk and God dialoguing back and forth. Habakkuk is going to talk to God. God is going to call, talk back to Habakkuk. And back and forth they go. So the first thing we're going to see with Habakkuk is that he is going to voice his complaints to God. So if you notice in Habakkuk 1, verses 2 through 4, the word says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for your help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. So Habakkuk, he, I don't, we don't know anything about him. We don't know where he lives. We don't know anything. But here he is. He looks out on the society. He looks out on the people, and he just sees sin everywhere. But he knows that God can remove the sin of the people. He can make it where people will follow him. So Habakkuk asks, how long are we going to cry out and will you not hear? How long will you idly look at wrong? Why won't you do something? This is where I begin to relate to Habakkuk. Because I can look out at society and I see sin everywhere. Habakkuk cries violence. Just turn on the news every night and all I see is Violence. Violence at schools. Violence in homes. Murder in the streets. And I'm just like Habakkuk. I'm crying out to God and I'm saying, why won't you do something? See, I grew up Southern Baptist. And Southern Baptist here in Texas means every summer, you're going to have a revival. Right? You're going to have a week long where you're going to bring in and it'd be dedicated to praying for the neighborhoods. The churches would come together, we'd pray that God would begin to move 
in our neighborhoods. Pray that people would turn from their sinful lives. They would come to Christ. Because we understood that just as God changed the heart of Pharaoh, he could change the heart of man. That God was the answer to all the sin that we saw going on. So year after year, we would pray for God to change the hearts of men. We would pray for the sinning to stop, for the violence to end. And I'm sure you guys have done the same thing. You, in your times, you have prayed for our neighborhoods. You've prayed for our cities, our country, the world. You've prayed for God to work a miracle in the lives of people. You have, we have done these things, and yet we look out at society, and it seems like society is just as evil, just as sinful, just as violent. So we can relate to Habakkuk. We can cry out to God, how long are you going to let this go on? Why don't you do something? So when I read Habakkuk, I nod my head and I go, yep. But God answers Habakkuk. We see his, his response in verse 5. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I'm doing a work in your day that you would not believe if told. For I'm raising up the Chaldeans. And some of your scripture, some of your translations may say Babylonians. Don't freak out. They're the exact same people. Don't worry. So behold, I'm raising up the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. So God responds by telling Habakkuk that, I got it. I see it. I see the sin. Don't worry. I'm going to do something. I'm going to bring in the Babylonians. We're just going to wipe out the Israelites. Right? He's going to use the Babylonians as a vessel to pour out judgment on the Israelites. Now, I want to be real clear. When I say that I relate to Habakkuk, I'm not standing here telling you that God is preparing a foreign country to come in and invade the United States. I'm not saying that God is about to pour judgment in the form of death and destruction. Nothing like that. But I still relate to Habakkuk. Because when Habakkuk cried out to God, I'm sure he had an idea of how he wanted God to move. He had an idea of what he wanted God to do. But God answered not how Habakkuk wanted. And this is how we relate. I've done this. You've done this. We pray. I prayed that God would move in an area in my life. And God does move, but not in the way I wanted. I prayed for A. I got B. I asked for this. I got that. That's how it is with Habakkuk. And it seems like the, the situations just got worse. That's Habakkuk. Because in his eyes, God's answer is way worse. Violence in the streets or robberies out on the road doesn't seem so bad when compared to the death and destruction of war. So, of course, Habakkuk has to try to fix the situation, right? So he's got he's to speak out to God. And this is going to get Habakkuk's first two special words, but God. Here we are in verse 13. Habakkuk says, You who are, pure, uh, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Habakkuk is saying, but God, the Babylonians, they're more wicked than I am. That doesn't fix the violence. That only makes it worse. So Habakkuk starts off his day praying to God to remove the sins of the people. God responds with a horrible prophecy of death and destruction. Habakkuk doesn't want this at all. So he, he comes up and thinks of an argument to change God's mind. And he thinks he's given a great argument. He thinks this is rock solid. You can't do this. This makes it worse. They don't even follow you. They're more violent than we are. 
And he thinks that his answer is good, because read in chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Habakkuk's confident. He knows that he's just saying, he's, he's gave the perfect argument. God's going to have to change his mind. I know that God has to, this argument is so good. I'm just going to go stand over here and I'm just going to wait for God because God's going to have to respond to that. That is the ultimate comeback kind of thing. He thinks God has to respond and God does respond. So how does God respond? God responds by pronouncing five woes on the Babylonians. The word for woe is hoy. It was used in funeral songs. It implies death. So in a way, you can replace woe with the words death too. So God says, he goes, woe to him or death to him who heaps up what is not his own. Death to him who gets evil again for his house. Death to him who builds up a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Death to him who makes his neighbors drink and pour out your wrath and make them drunk. And then verse 19, chapter 2, verse 19. Death to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver. There is no breath in it at all. So God pronounces death upon the Babylonians. So again, Habakkuk started the day. He's pointing to violence among the people. But instead of removing the violence, God says even more violence is coming. And when Habakkuk tells God that he can't even do that, God just piles on even more. This is not going how Habakkuk wants things to go. It's going in all the wrong directions. So Habakkuk has to try one more time. He gets his second time, he's going to give the words. But God... We find this in verse, chapter 3, verse 2. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. So Habakkuk says, God, I have heard your reports. Now, this, this report is very similar to what we're going to see, what we can see in Numbers chapter 14. Because in, in Numbers 14, what you have is the Israelites, they're coming right up to the edge of the promised land. It's time to go into the promised land, but they, they are scared. They said, they're giants. We can't do this. It would have been better if we stayed in Egypt. So God says, Moses, move out of the way. I'm just going to wipe them all out, and we're going to start all over. And Moses goes, whoa, 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 You can't do that. Time out, time out, time out. We can't go that way. So let's read what he says. Numbers 14, verse 15. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them, that he has killed them in the wilderness. Moses is saying that if, if God, if you destroy the Israelites, it'll make it seem like you're just not strong enough to deliver the people. It's going to make you look bad. Habakkuk uses the exact same word. Of course, as soon as I take out my... my, my 
I apologize. Your markers. There we are. So Moses, or the Habakkuk, the word that Habakkuk uses for report is the same word that Moses uses for fame in Numbers. So what Habakkuk is implying is that if you let this Babylonian army destroy Israel, it will seem like the Babylonian false gods were stronger than Yahweh. You're going to say the Babylonians, those that you just said, they're wooden statues with gold over them. They're more stronger than you. It's going to make you look bad. You can't do this, God. But God, no. This is a strong appeal by Habakkuk. This appeal worked for Moses in Numbers 14, 20. It says that the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word. According to Moses' word. What you said, okay, I won't destroy the Israelites. So let's see how this works for Habakkuk. Habakkuk, So God responds to Habakkuk. We're going to start in verse 3. Go all the way to 15. So the verse 3 says, God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Selah. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. So far so good. But before him went pestilence. Plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and he shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. Everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kishon in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its violence. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the house of the wicked, laying him bare bare from thigh to neck, Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors. You came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty Waters. Happy Thanksgiving? Because <laughs> I know what you're thinking. This is a tough sermon. This is rough. This is depressing. This isn't what I want to hear on a Thanksgiving Sunday. If Habakkuk ended here, if the sermon ended here, I would agree. But it doesn't. We have Habakkuk's response. Verse 17, 17, 18, and 19. Habakkuk responds to God. After he's seen all of this come out, he says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, and the flock be cut off from the fold, and there's no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. 
He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. This is a beautiful response, a beautiful example of faith. But you know what else? It makes no sense. It makes no sense why Habakkuk would respond this way. Think about it. Habakkuk prays to God about violence. God says he's going to bring up the Babylonians to have even more violence. Habakkuk says, but God, and then God pronounces death to the Babylonians. So even more violence. Habakkuk says, but God, again, and God reiterates the death of the Babylonians. After all this wrath, judgment, death, Habakkuk responds with rejoicing in the Lord? What is there to rejoice about? Or you can say that he's rejoicing that the Babylonians will be destroyed, but no matter what happens to the Babylonians, nothing changes with Israel. They are going to be wiped out by the Babylonians. If you think back for that, you're going to get to the book of Daniel. This is what happens. They come in, they're going to take Daniel, take everybody, go back to Babylon, right? People are going to die. People will be taken to slavery. But yet, Habakkuk rejoices. I'll be honest, I struggle with this. What causes Habakkuk to rejoice, even when death and destruction is right around the corner? Why does he rejoice? The reasons for his rejoicing are the promises of God. See, God is a promise-making God. He is a covenant-making God. In Genesis 15 and 17, God makes a covenant with Abraham. God promises Abraham that he will be the father of many nations. Kings will come from him. His descendants will be like the stars in the skies. This covenant is an everlasting covenant. A covenant with no end. A covenant that cannot be broken. God will not break promises. The scripture shows us that this covenant has never been broken. There have been times when things were not were going really bad for the Israelites. But all God always preserves a remnant. 1 Kings 19 tells us that God preserved a remnant of 7,000 who did not bend the knee to Baal. Isaiah 10 tells us that there will be a remnant that will return to God. So no matter what is going on at that moment, we can rejoice like Habakkuk. It doesn't matter what we see at that moment. It doesn't matter how bad it is. It doesn't matter what the news say. It doesn't matter what the pundits say. It doesn't None of those things matter because we can rejoice we can be like Habakkuk because God has given us promises and we know these promises will happen this is our happy thanksgiving but today I want to look at three areas where God may has made these promises it's one thing to just say oh yeah 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 God he made these promises it's going to come true but it's a whole other thing we need to kind of focus down on three specific promises So we're going to look at God's promises about the world and the church, promises about our children, and then promises about the world. So the first, promises about the world. The first promise is God has promised peace. Pastor Greg talked about this promise last week. We see this in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. The scripture says, It shall come to pass in the later days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow from it and many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, 
to the house of the God of Jacob, that we may teach his ways, that we may walk in his path. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations. He shall decide disputes for many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. This is serious peace. God isn't saying that this peace could happen. He's not saying that it might happen. He's saying that it definitely will happen. He says it shall come to pass. It shall be established. Shall be lifted up. They shall judge. Shall decide. Shall beat their swords. They shall not lift up a sword. They shall not learn war. The peace is guaranteed. But when we look out in the war, look out in the world, what do we see? We see war. War in the Middle East. War in Ukraine. War in Yemen. War in Syria. In Sudan. Somalia. Congo. Pakistan. Colombia. Haiti. Everywhere. War is everywhere. Violence is everywhere. When we look at the church, what do we see? The church is being persecuted. Globally, more than 360 Christian, million Christians suffer from high levels of persecution. In 1993, Christians faced extreme persecution in 40 different countries. Today, that number is now 73. Worldwide, one in seven Christians now experience high levels of persecution. This is violence against the church. War against the church. It's not peace. But no matter how bad it may be, no matter how much violence is in the world, we can say with a heart of thanksgiving, and this is our first time, but God. See, Habakkuk uses the words, he says, but God, to complain. We're going to say the words, but God, to show that we're going to stand on his promises. There may be violence, but God has said there will be peace. God has said that he will make Christ's enemies his footstools, Psalm 110.1. God has said he will soon crush Satan, Romans 16.20. God has said he will build up his church and the gates of hell will not prevail, Matthew 16.17 and 18. God has said that he is binding Satan in his own house and he will plunder Satan's goods, Mark 3.27. It is because of these promises that we can say like Habakkuk, although the tree has no blossom, No fruit on the vines, no evidence of God at all. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will have a heart of thanksgiving because God has promised. God has promised peace. That's number one. But number two, God has promises a special relationship with the children of believers. 1 Corinthians 7.14 tells us that because of our faith, because of the faith of the parents, our children are holy. They're set apart. This means that God has a special relationship with our children that is different from the relationship of children of unbelievers. So I want you to take for a moment, think back when your children were born. Because I can think back and I could look down. I remember looking down at this super tiny little human being, this small child, and being overwhelmed with the desire for her to know Christ. I prayed over her night after night for her to have a relationship with God. Fast forward a few years, she's ready for school. 
Again, all I want for her is to stay focused on God. I don't want her to be swayed by the ways of the world. I want to keep her eyes on Christ. In a few years, she'll go to college. She'll move out. She'll become a wife, then a mother. At each of these moments, all I can think about is how I want her to stay in relationship with God. Every parent can relate to this. We worry about our kids. We stress about our kids. We have fear for our kids. But God. We have fear, but God says our children will serve him in Psalm twenty-two thirty. Psalm 37, 25 says God will provide food for our children. Psalm 72, 4 says God will deliver our children. Psalm 90, 16 says God will show his glorious power to glorious power to our children. Genesis 17, 7 says the children partake in God's covenant. Isaiah 54, 13 says our children will be taught the ways of the Lord. And Isaiah 44, 3 says that God will pour out his spirit on our children. So we can be like Habakkuk. We can say that as I hold this newborn baby, as I watch her go to school, as she goes on her first date, as she goes to college, as she becomes a wife, as she becomes a mother, I have no idea what the future will bring. But I can stand tall. I can rejoice. I can be thankful because God has promised. Promises for the world. Promises for our children. But also, number three, promises of salvation. Promises for our salvation. John 6.39 tells us that the Father, that all that the Father gives to Christ, He will lose none of them. And He will raise them on the last day. So we can understand that we're sinners. And as we talk about it in our catechism class, we can understand that we're miserable sinners. We understand that we're dead in our trespasses and sin. We understand because of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, we are made alive in Christ. We understand that we had a heart of stone and we now have a heart of flesh. We understand that we're justified, that we're sanctified. We understand these things. We can read them. We're like, okay, okay, okay. But we can have doubts. We ask ourselves, but what if God changes his mind? We're like Paul. We see the sin in our lives. We see the struggle. We ask, why would God let a sinner like me enter heaven? We see the sin. We see the filth. We know who we are. We know what we deserve. But God. We are sinners, but God says we are children of God because of his will. John 1.13. John 10.28 says we have eternal life. We will not perish. We cannot be snatched out of his hand. Ephesians 1.13 says that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 1.5 says that we are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation. So we can be like Habakkuk. We can look at our lives. We can see the sin, the brokenness, the struggles. But we can rejoice. We can have joy. We have thanksgiving because Romans 9 promises that God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy and compassion on whom he will compassion. This does not depend on my will or my effort, but it's on God and God alone who has mercy. So there's promises for the world, promises to our children, 
promises to our own souls. So during this time of Thanksgiving, don't focus on the evil around. Focus on the promises of God. Remember them. Meditate on them. Hold them dearly. Let them be a source of rejoicing, a source of thanksgiving. And remember the two words, but God. All I see is violence, but God. But God has promised peace. I worry about my children, but God. But God says they are special children of the covenant. I'm worried that I'm not good enough for my own salvation, but God. But God has promises that Christ will not lose you and that you will be raised on the last day. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just come with a heart of thanksgiving, a heart of joy, a heart of, of, of thanks, just being thankful to you for your promises. We know that you could have done that however you wanted to. You could have created however you wanted to create it. You didn't even have to create, but you chose to. You could have, as some people say, you just wound us up like a watch and set us free. Just let it, whatever happens, happens. But you're not like that, Lord. That you have chosen to be in relationship with us, to condescend down to us, to our level. You've chosen to give us promises. You've chosen to give us the security. You've chosen to, to, to be in all of our lives. And for that, we are so, so thankful. So, Lord, we ask you just continue to remind us of those promises. When we think of those promises, let us just give a hallelujah, saying thank you, Lord, for what you've done. Be with us now as we continue in worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.